So as most of you know, in these classes, we have been studying uh, various attributes of God, characteristics of God, if you want to put it that way. And this morning, we come to consider the omniscience of God. The word omniscience is derived from the Latin language, meaning all knowledge. And as with God's other attributes, which we've studied, the truth of God's omniscience permeates the Bible, even though that particular word is not actually used, to the best of my knowledge, anywhere in the Bible. But it's a good word, a helpful word, to concisely state a truth about God, that God knows everything. And indeed, that's the first point this morning that we'll consider, that God knows everything. God knows everything possible, everything actual. He knows all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is fully acquainted with every detail in the life of every human being, in the life of everyone here on earth, as well as those who are presently in heaven, those also that are in hell. God does by one pure, simple, undivided, eternal act of his understanding, know all things perfectly, immediately, distinctly, at every moment of time. Stated a bit differently, God is able to know all things comprehensively at once. If you stop and think about that, that of course is not something we are ever able to do as creatures and as sinners. And even if we were not sinners as creatures, we cannot know all things comprehensively at once. But this is true of God. He knows all things infallibly, immutably, and perpetually. God is never taken by surprise. To his knowledge, nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away. He has never learned anything because he has always known everything. You and I need to learn about God's omniscience. You and I need to learn about many things in this world and in life. But God has never learned anything because he has always known everything. But now let's look more specifically. God knows everything about his creation. So turn with me, please, to Job chapter 37, and we'll read verses 14 to 16. Job 37, verses 14 to 16, to see this truth that God knows everything about his creation. Job 37, verse 14. Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his charge upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? And there we stop the reading. Now, these are not the words of God to Job. These are indeed truthful words from Elihu, one of Job's friends. And in order to humble Job, Elihu asks him rhetorical questions. He reminds Job that he does not know how God causes the lightning to shine forth from the clouds. Job does not know how God directs the clouds in the sky. But God does know these realities. God knows things truly and instantly and not by observation. Again, we often learn, and God never learns, by observing things. That's what scientists are supposed to do. 
But you see, God knows things truly and instantly throughout his creation and not by observation. God knows all things thoroughly and not by piecemeal. To God's knowledge, there is nothing distant, but all is near, nothing future, but all is present, nothing hidden, but all is open fully to God. God knows everything about his creation. But secondly, God knows everything about men and their lives, their actions, their thoughts, their words, and their lifespan. Turn to Psalm 139 and verse 1. Psalm 139 and verse 1. <clears throat> Psalm 139, verse 1. O Jehovah, you have searched me and known me. You know my downsitting and my uprising. You understand my thought afar off. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Jehovah, you know it all together. Your eyes did see my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written. Even the days that were ordained for me, when as yet... There was none of them. And there we stop our reading. So the Lord knows every single human being thoroughly as if that one individual was the only human being in the entire world. You see how that's stated there in verse 2. The psalmist writes, You know my downsitting and my uprising. It's very individualized, it's very personal. The Lord has perfect and infallible knowledge of every single human being who has ever lived or who now lives or who will ever live in the future. Notice verse 3. You are acquainted with all my ways. And then the Lord knows completely and perfectly every minute secret in the deepest and darkest corners of every human being's mind and heart. You see that again in verse 2. You understand my thought afar off. Though as yet I may not personally be aware of the shape of my own thoughts, though my thoughts are invisible to human sight, God knows the nature, the drift, and the results of all of my thoughts, and notice verse 4 of Psalm 139, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Jehovah, you know it altogether. So before my thought is my own thought, it is foreknown and comprehended by God. And although we do not know the day of our death, God does. Notice that in verse 16, he has ordained a precise number of days in which each of us will live on this earth. Verse 16, the days that were, were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. So before any of us was ever even born, God had already determined our life span. So in summary, there was never a time, if I may use that word time, in which we were unknown to God, and there never will be a moment in which we shall be beyond God's knowledge. God knows everything about men and their lives, their actions, thoughts, words, and lifespan. But thirdly, the Bible teaches us that God knows everything about the hearts of men, now, that's really a subset, as it were, of number two, but we should focus on this. God knows everything about the hearts of men. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 6. <clears throat> the prophet Samuel has been sent to choose and anoint the next king of Israel. 
and he's been told it's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, Jesse is in, excuse me, Samuel's in that process of trying to determine who that next king will be. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, we read, And it came to pass, when they were come, that he, Samuel, looked on Eliab, one of the sons of, of Jesse, and said, Surely Jehovah's anointed is before him. But Jehovah said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Jehovah sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but Jehovah looks on the heart. You see, we cannot see into the hearts of men, but God can because God is omniscient. God thoroughly knew the heart of Eliab, and God thoroughly knew the heart of David. We see that very clearly. But now turn to John chapter 2 and verse 23, where we see this same truth, that God knows everything about the hearts of men. John 2 verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus, during the feast, many believed on his name, beholding his signs which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself unto them, for that he knew all men, and because he needed not that anyone should bear witness concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is truly man, but also truly God. And as God, he himself knew what was in man. He did not need anyone to instruct him. He fully understood. He comprehended all that was in man, every individual man. The Lord Jesus Christ was completely knowledgeable about their innermost thoughts and the intents of their hearts. He did not need to ask questions, though he did do that at times on earth as the God-man for good and wise purposes, but he did not need to ask questions in order to expose their thoughts and motives. Neither did the Lord need the testimony of others in order to acquire information. And again, as the God-man, there are times when he asks questions, we understand that. But as God, he did not need to acquire information regarding the individual lives and hearts of men. That's what we see here in John 2, verses 23 to 25. But now turn to Hebrews 4 and verse 13. God knows everything about the hearts of men. Hebrews 4, verse 13. And there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. There we stop the reading. Now I'm going to quote here the commentator John Brown. He says something that's, I think, very interesting, fascinating, I think helpful. He wrote this, that there is here a reference to the manner in which the priests inspected the victims intended for sacrifice. After being killed, they were hung up by the neck. The skin was stripped off them, the bowels taken out, and the backbone cleft, so that the internal part of the animal was completely laid open, and the priest had an opportunity of seeing any blemish which might unfit it for being offered as a sacrifice. You see, he's saying he believes that's what's meant here. It's a, it's a, 
reference, really, to what the priest did in sacrificing animals when the writer states, all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. So whether or not we accept that explanation of this passage, the clear meaning of verse 13 is that God is omniscient. He is fully and perfectly acquainted with all of the inner thoughts and feelings of every man, woman, and child. All are manifest in God's sight. All, all of us, are naked, as it were, spiritually, truly, our minds, our hearts, everything, we're all naked before God's eyes. And when you think about that truth, it should make you, on the one hand, as a Christian, loving God that he knows all things. On the other hand, it should be very sobering. God knows what's going on in your thoughts right now, sitting in the pews here on this Lord's Day. He knows whether your mind is actually thinking about yesterday he knows whether your thoughts have gone off to tomorrow and work responsibilities instead of being present here, paying attention to the word. God knows all of your thoughts and my thoughts perfectly, completely, comprehensively right now. There's no possibility, therefore, of imposing upon God and tricking or deceiving God by means of a false profession of faith. So someone may say to you or to another person in the church or to the pastors, uh, I believe the Lord has saved me. Well, that's wonderful to hear. We always want to hear that. But if you are a hypocrite, if you just want to gain some advantage by saying, I believe God has saved me, if you are seeking to impress others, you see, you cannot possibly deceive God. You cannot possibly trick God by means of a false profession of faith or a mere outward appearance of godliness when the reality of godliness and the power of godliness is absent. We need to remember that God is omniscient of our entire hearts and lives. But fourthly, God knows everything about men's sins. And again, these points are kind of interwoven together, but by way of clarification, God knows everything about men's sins. Turn to Psalm 90, Psalm 90, 90, Psalm 90 and verse 8. Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. And that's all we'll read from Psalm 90. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. This verse teaches us about the omnipresence of God. He is present but it also teaches us about the omniscience of God. And although we may think at times that the sins which are committed in secret are hidden from God's knowledge, this is not true. There are no secrets before our omniscient God. God needs no other light to see our sins but by the light of his own countenance, as the psalmist states, the light of his own face. The idea is that God's countenance, his face, is like the sun in its strength at noon. God does not need artificial light. He does not need the light of the sun. He himself is that light. The sins that are committed in deepest darkness and hidden from every human being are clearly open to God and seen as if they were done in broad daylight. Consider the examples in the Bible of those who thought that their secret sins would not become known. 
Cain murdered his brother, thinking it would never be discovered. Achan took and hid a wedge of gold in his tent. David committed adultery. Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the sale price of their property. When the act of sin is passed and forgotten by the sinner, it is still known by God, and it is exposed in the light of his countenance. Such truth is meant to make us also fear God. There is a legitimate biblical godly fear that we're to have of God. And that fear of God should be used by us to keep us from going into temptations, to keep us from actually doing secret sins. They're secret to everyone else, but not to God. God knows everything about men's sins. Now, fifthly, God knows everything about the future. God infallibly knows the future, and this is because he has sovereignly decreed the future. In the scriptures, God frequently declares that one significant distinction, not the only one, but one significant distinction between himself and all of the false gods and idols of the world is God's infallible ability to predict the future. False gods could not do that, of course. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8 to see this truth. Isaiah 42 and verse 8. God knows everything about the future. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise unto graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see there the Lord saying, before something happens in the future, I will tell you about it before it comes to pass. He predicts the future because he has decreed the future. Turn to Isaiah chapter 44 now. Isaiah 44 and verse 26. In verse 24 of Isaiah 44, you see that it is Jehovah is speaking. Verse 24, thus says Jehovah, your Redeemer. And then verse 26 of Isaiah 44, thus says Jehovah, your Redeemer, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, that says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up waste places thereof, that says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And there we stop the reading. So verses 26 to 28 contain several predictive clauses which refer to God's redemptive activity, which he was to accomplish in the distant future. He prophesied of them. He predicted them. Indeed, all of these predictions did come to pass as God declared. God has perfect foreknowledge of all future events because they have been decreed by God, which explains, of course, why the prophets were able to make predictions of things in the future. So God knows everything about the future. And when you think of that reality, dear Christian, that should give you comfort. You read the news on the internet. You listen to the news, perhaps in your car on the radio. You go on your smartphone and you look at things that are there in various websites on the internet. 
And you can easily become unhinged. You can easily become unsettled. You can easily become anxious and worried, thinking, what is going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week? How about next year? With the elections in November, what is going to go on in this country? What about in Europe? What about in Ukraine? You can be thinking about your children, your grandchildren. You could be thinking about all sorts of matters in the future that you know nothing about. And you can get really tied up in knots and anxiety and fears. But you need to step back, calm your fears and fear God, and remind yourself that God knows everything. And he knows everything about the future including the very next second, next minute, next day, next year, etc. We need to remember these truths and not be anxious. So when we state that God knows everything, we must also understand in the second place that this means that God knows himself completely and perfectly. Now, you may find that a bit odd. It's not odd. God knows himself completely and perfectly. You do not know yourself completely. You do not know yourself perfectly. You may at times think you do, but you really don't. But God, who is omniscient, knows himself completely and perfectly. God not only infallibly knows all things past, present, and future, but he also knows himself perfectly, as many Puritans stated correctly. And Stephen Charnock wrote this, God is ignorant of nothing, and certainly he is not ignorant of himself. God's essential blessedness and happiness is rooted in his perfect understanding of his own essence and attributes. That's a quote from Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, in his book entitled The Existence and the Attributes of God. Now, that's really, I think, mind-blowing. God's essential blessedness and happiness is rooted in his perfect understanding of his essence and attributes. Charnock continues by explaining, if God did not know himself perfectly, he could not create, since he would be ignorant, or at least not fully cognizant, of his own power and his own ability. It's a quote. I had to think about this as I was reading, studying, preparing, and I thought, is this true? Just because Charnock the Puritan wrote it, does that mean it's true? What does the Bible reveal? Well, you can't point to one verse that says this is true, but the testimony of Scripture, and when you think this out, you say, this is correct. If God did not know himself perfectly, he would then be at least partially ignorant of some aspects of his character, his being, his attributes, including his power, his power to do whatever he would please to do. Charnock continues, if God did not know himself perfectly, he could not govern perfectly because he would be without complete knowledge of his own holiness and righteousness. Again, you have to stop and think I'll say it again, if God did not know himself perfectly, completely, if God were not really omniscient about himself, he could not govern perfectly because he would be without complete knowledge of his own holiness and righteousness. But God does know himself perfectly and completely. Charnock continues, and although God knows himself perfectly, yet this knowledge of himself does not terminate there, but blossoms into a love of himself and delight in himself. 
This love of himself necessarily flows from the knowledge of himself and his own goodness. He cannot but love himself and delight in himself upon the perfect knowledge of himself. End quote. Now, I hope you're saying to yourself, it's hard for me to grasp that. This is not an expression by God of self-centered, selfish love. It's not an expression by God of self-centered, selfish love. Remember, we are commanded in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, the Lord Jesus said. For any of us not to love God, according to the Lord Jesus' words in Matthew 22, to not love God as we're commanded by Jesus is sin. God is our supreme good. God is our perfect God. God deserves to be loved. God should be loved. God must be loved. For God, therefore, not to love himself as the supreme good and not take delight in himself as the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, perfect, infallible, omnipresent, omniscient, supremely good God would be to act contrary to God's very character and being. It is mind-boggling. God takes delight in himself as he has perfect knowledge, complete knowledge, infallible knowledge of himself. And that's not something wrong. That's what actually is right. So when we speak of God's omniscience, God omnisciently knows himself as well, completely, thoroughly, perfectly, infallibly. But now let's move on to a third major point. God's knowledge is infinite and independent of the creature. Turn to Psalm 147 and verse 5. Psalm 147 and verse 5. God's knowledge is infinite and independent of the creature. Psalm 147 verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Literally what the psalmist states here is God's understanding is without number. Now my understanding of biology is not infinite. Far from it. It is not without number. Even if I study biology diligently and incessantly for the remainder of my life, my understanding of biology would still be very limited. I would never be able to say that my understanding of that one subject is without number. It is infinite. But you see, God's understanding of biology is infinite. It is without number. He's the creator. God's understanding of physics is infinite without number. God's understanding of history is infinite without number. God's understanding of everything is infinite without number. His knowledge and understanding about everything, every event, and every person is infinite. God not only knows whatsoever has happened in the past and every part of his vast domains, and he is not only thoroughly acquainted with everything that is now happening throughout the entire universe, thoroughly acquainted with everything that is now happening throughout the entire universe, but God is also perfectly knowledgeable of every event from the least to the greatest that ever will happen in the ages to come, past, present, future. 
God's knowledge of the future is as complete as is his knowledge of the past and the present. And that because the future, of course, depends entirely upon himself. So turn now to Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And there we stop our reading. So because God's knowledge is infinite, without boundaries, immeasurable, without limits, God can declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. For God, nothing is unexpected. God can account for and is in sovereign control of all theoretical variables and eventualities because God knows the end from the beginning. Since God's knowledge is infinite, it is not idle speculation to say that nothing to God is contingent. This is very important. Because God's knowledge is infinite, it's not just vain speculation to say nothing to God is contingent. And that means nothing is dependent upon someone or something else. That's what the word contingent means. Nothing to God is contingent. It's not dependent upon something or someone else. It's very important to understand this. I'll give you an example. You probably have heard this said to you when you say to another believer, I believe in the doctrine of election of sinners, that God has predestinated from before the foundation of the world those whom he would save. He has chosen to save a multitude that no man can number. God has elected those whom he would save. And you probably have heard sincere Christians say in response who do not believe the doctrine of election as the Bible teaches it, you probably have heard them say something incorrectly like this. They say, well, God looked down the corridors of time with his omniscience, and he saw, by way of example, that John Doe would believe in Jesus Christ. And because he saw that John Doe, with his omniscience, he saw that John Doe would believe in Jesus Christ, then God elected, God chose John Doe. You see, God's election in that scenario is contingent, dependent upon John Doe believing. But that is absolutely unbiblical and wrong. That's not correct, biblically. I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff to think about. But now I need to quote someone who explains this, I think, very well. <clears throat> not only are such contingencies not knowable to God, in other words, there's no such thing as a contingency like that in God's universe, if I put it that way, not only are such contingencies not knowable to God, but also such future-free contingencies do not and cannot even exist because they do not exist in God's mind as an aspect of the universe whose every event God certainly decreed, creatively caused, and completely and providentially governs. Continuing the quote, if there were one square inch of this entire universe not under God's sovereign governance, God is neither absolutely sovereign nor omniscient, since that one square inch would have equal claim to its own sovereignty to do as it willed, 
with the authority even to set up a sign saying to God, keep out. The Bible clearly teaches that God did in fact foreordain whatever comes to pass. The Bible clearly teaches that God knows all things infallibly and providentially governs all his creatures and all their actions to bring about his own holy ends. End quote. God is independent. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. Well, what are some lessons then from these truths? I've said a couple along the way, but first of all, contemplating, thinking about God's omniscience should give the Christian true comfort. Thinking about God being omniscient should give you, the Christian, true comfort in times of trouble because God knows perfectly all of your troubles. He knows the causes of your troubles, of course. He has ordained them. He's not the author of sin. He's not tainted by sin, but God is in sovereign control of all things. And God knows perfectly all of your troubles, their causes, your griefs, the needful purposes for these troubles, and the ultimate outcome. In 2 Corinthians 1, Verse 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction through the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So as you think of your troubles, whatever they may be, you need to step back and say, God knows these troubles. He knows all of the purposes. He knows the outcome. And I can trust in him and receive comfort from my omniscient God and then be able to comfort others in their trials. So contemplating God's omniscience should also give the Christian true comfort in times of perplexity, not only trouble, but perplexity. God knows perfectly what to you is incomprehensible, what to you is mysterious, what to you is strange, what to you you cannot figure out. Even this week, I said to my wife, sometimes I've wondered about certain things in our family life. Why has God done this? I'm not angry at God, thankfully. I'm not bitter towards God, thankfully. But Lord, why? Perplexities. Well, Job, he said this, Behold, I go forward, but he is not here. Backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, when he does work, but I cannot behold him. God hides himself on the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You see, he knows, Job said, God knows the way I take. God is omniscient, and therefore I can have comfort in times of perplexity. Also in times of doubt. Surely you, if you're a Christian for more than a few months, have had seasons of doubt. Doubting all sorts of things. Think of the Lord Jesus walking initially, uh, veiled from the sight of those two disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And they're speaking about the death of Christ and their disappointments, not knowing it's Jesus who's there with them. They had lots of doubt. We had hoped that he would be the Messiah. That's what we thought, but he was killed by the Romans, killed by our Jewish leaders. He's dead. You see, they had lots of doubt. Was he really the Messiah? We believe he is, but what has happened? So there was trouble as well, perplexity as well, but certainly some doubts. And what did Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did it not behoove the Christ to suffer these things, to enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, God knows perfectly how to strengthen you in time of doubt when you remember that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows my doubts. And you can use the scriptures to dispel those doubts as Jesus did with these two men on the road to Emmaus. But God's omniscience should give you comfort in times of weariness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul wrote, for, for even when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no relief. You see, weariness. But we were afflicted on every side, troubles as well, weariness. Without were fightings, within were fears, doubts, perplexities. Nevertheless, he that comforts the lowly, even God, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see, in times of weariness, God knows perfectly that you are weak. He knows you're made of dust. He knows how to strengthen you spiritually and practically in every way. And on that occasion, God strengthened weary Apostle Paul by sending Titus to him to bring him comfort. God knew Paul's need. God supplied for Paul's need. Well, you can also take comfort thinking of God's omniscience in times of sin and failure. God knows perfectly that you sinned. Perhaps it was what you call a secret sin. God knows perfectly that you sinned. He knows perfectly how you sinned. He knows perfectly all of the circumstances of your sin. And thinking of God's omniscience may, for you initially, bring you some fear. And that's good. But if you are a true believer, it should also bring you comfort. God was not surprised by your sin as a believer. You shouldn't then be emboldened to sin more, but you should think, no, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he received God's righteous punishment due to me for all of my sins and all of my life, including this sin. God knows these realities in my life. Think of the Lord Jesus after the resurrection dealing with Peter, who had failed the Lord Jesus Christ, who had sinned against the Lord by denying him. And after the resurrection, he said unto Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, do you love me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You see, Peter appealed to the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know all things, Lord. And you know that even though I have sinned, in denying you in your darkest, deepest trial and trouble. I denied you. I lied. I temporarily betrayed you. You know all of that. You know all things. But you also know, Lord, because you are omniscient, that I love you. You see, God's omniscience can bring you true comfort, even in times of sin, and failure. But furthermore, contemplating God's omniscience should give the, the Christian encouragement to pray. 
You say, well, why do I need to pray about this? God already knows it. Well, you know enough from your Bible to know that God commands you to pray. God invites you to pray. But as you're praying, you should be saying to yourself, at least inwardly, God already knows my needs. God already knows my petitions. But I'm going to bring them to my omniscient God. He knows all things. So you pour out your heart to God through Jesus Christ, by faith in Christ. You don't hold back because you know that God knows all things in your heart and life and all of your needs. So you should be encouraged to pray as you think about the truth that God is omniscient. And contemplating God's omniscience, thirdly, should give the Christian fuel to worship God. And I'd like you now to turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And verse 33. <clears throat> Contemplating God's omniscience should give the Christian fuel to worship God. Notice Paul's words here, Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Brethren, you see, as you think about the fact that God knows all things, and you realize that in his knowledge, his knowledge, his judgments are unsearchable, you and I cannot trace out his ways. We cannot know the mind of God. No human has been his counselor. No spirit has been his counselor. When we think of these truths of God's omniscience, it should cause us to bow our hearts before him and love him and worship him and serve him and obey him and love one another. As a result, we should speak of these truths about God's attributes and God's omniscience one to another to encourage each other to worship our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's now close in prayer. Father, we confess that we have grappled with truths which it's very hard for our little, finite, puny brains to wrap around. But we thank you that we are to grapple with the biblical truth that you are omniscient. And we ask that you would use this truth for our spiritual good, our practical good, in many ways. Lord, we pray that what we have learned from your word this day would not be forgotten, but that you would indelibly write these truths upon our own minds and hearts, and that we, by your grace and power, would live in the light of these truths. Receive our thanksgiving for giving us your word, giving us the Holy Spirit. Receive our thanksgiving for the fact that you are omniscient. We worship you, we thank you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.